glad to see that great hymn back in our rotation after a long absence. It's good to be reminded in a, in a world that is, you know, on one hand, we, we reject doctrinally the, the health and wealth and prosperity movement, and yet there's still a little bit of that us, in, in us, isn't there, that we think everything should be easy. Uh, we think we, oh, God, I, I learned best when things are smooth, but we know better if we really give it a, a thought. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us as we open his word together in the 15th chapter of Judges. Our Father and our God, we give you thanks. We thank you for your mercy to us. You've given mercy to sinners who in no way deserved it, and yet you've set your love upon us from eternity. You've made yourself known through your word, through the prophets, through the law, and now finally and fully you've made yourself known in Christ your own Son. I pray that in this, in this hour as we consider your word together that you will sharpen our minds to be able to understand the very mind of God revealed to us by your word, through your spirit. I pray that you will help us to be convinced that there is sin that yet remains in us and that you are a God who is merciful and loves us so much that you will not allow that sin to remain. Father, will you convict us of our complacency, of our comfort with sin and worldliness and carnality that remains in us? Show us the better way in Christ, the right path, the holy path, the narrow path. Grant to us the grace to flee from sin and to walk before you in holiness. Help us to love one another. Help us to love our God. Help us to use this means of of the preaching of your word to conform us more and more to his very image of our Savior. We ask this for his sake. Amen. Take your seat, please, and and turn with me to Judges chapter 15. Well, in a a book that in in many ways we could characterize as as, as somewhat odd, Uh, if we're honest, the book of Judges sort of stands out in the rest of the canon because it's, well, it's raw. Um, It's hard at times. In fact, uh, here in a couple weeks when we finish the, the, the Samson narrative, we get into some of the darkest chapters, the darkest words in all of Scripture. And of all those things in the book of Judges, chapter 15, I think, is, is not the most odd chapter, but there are particular oddities here that we wrestle with. We'll, we'll, we'll see things that Samson does, and we sit back and go, what do we do with this? Is this something that we ought to imitate? Is this something that we ought to condemn? And yet God is using it. How do we think about these things? And so the, the book as a, as a whole can be confounding sometimes with all of its fascinating characters and exciting events. But we're off, often left wondering, how do, we, how do we apply this? How do we make sense of these things? In Judges 15, for example, we see the strength of Samson on display. And it's marvelous to think about it and rejoice, and we should rejoice along with the Israelites in the destruction of the Philistines. But we also see a man who's just driven by his passions. And we're going to see a range of passions in Samson, whether it's his sexual passion or his anger, his desire for vengeance. He's a passionate man, and he's driven by those impulses. So I'm going to approach the text a little bit differently than how I would normally, how I normally do. For those of you who are visitors, I don't attack this, the text or approach the text in exactly this way every week. Um, but sometimes I think uh, it's helpful to arrange something a little differently. I'm going to read the text, all of chapter 15, 
And then I'm going to give just kind of uh, some brief comments about what's going on in the text. A little bit of a, of a rolling commentary, which I don't normally do. But I think it's, there's some things that I want to point out. And then we're going to come back and think through, how, what, do we, what do we take away from this? What's the application? How do we think about some, frankly, some strange events? So let's read together now the Word of God, Samson, or not Samson, Judges chapter 15, about Samson. We, have, we begin with a time marker. You'll, you'll recall, in fact, I'm going to back up the last few verses of chapter 14. Samson, as you know, had been down to Timnah to, he found, he set his eyes upon a Philistine woman. His parents urged him to reconsider. He would not. Samson is a living, breathing picture of the theme of Judges. Every man did what was right in his own eyes, and obviously the mighty Samson did likewise. So he sees, he wants, he claims, but then he's, he runs away, or he leaves in chapter 14. So that sets the stage in verse 20. Samson's wife, verse, verse 20 of chapter 14, Samson's wife was given to his companion who had been his best man. Now, the narrator tells us that, but as we enter chapter 15, kind of pretend you don't know that yet. Because Samson doesn't know it. And so Samson, as we're going to see, he comes in with a lamb under his arm, and you might think, well, that's kind of strange. Well, think of dozen red roses. This is the ancient Near Eastern way of a man saying, I kind of blew it, stormed out of here. Um, I'm, I'm feeling kind of amorous, and I'd like to come home. So that's the scene as chapter 15 opens. After some days, at the time of wheat harvest, Samson went to visit his wife with a young goat. And he said, I will go in to my wife in the chamber. But her father would not allow him to go in. And her father said, I really thought that you utterly hated her. So I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister more beautiful than she? Please take her instead. And Samson said to them, this time, I shall be innocent in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. So Samson went and caught 300 foxes and took torches, and he turned them tail to tail and put a torch between each pair of tails. And when he had set fire to the torches, he let the foxes go into the standing grain of the Philistines and set fire to the stacked grain and the standing grain, as well as the olive orchards. Then the Philistines said, who has done this? And they said, Samson the son-in-law of the Timnite, because he has taken his wife and given her to his companion. And the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. And Samson said to them, If this is what you do, I swear I will be avenged on you, and after that I will quit. And he struck them hip and thigh with a great blow, and he went down and stayed in the cleft of the rock of Edom. And then... The Philistines came up and encamped at Judah and made a raid on Lehi. And the men of Judah said, Why have you come up against us? They said, We have come up to bind Samson to do to him as he did to us. The 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock of Edom and said to Samson, Do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is this that you have done to us? And he said to them, As they did to me, so have I done to them. And they said to him, We have come down to bind you, that we may give you into the hand of the Philistines. And Samson said to them, Swear to me that you will not attack me yourselves. And they said to him, No, 
We will only bind you and give you into their hands. We will surely not kill you. So they bound him with two new ropes and brought him up from the rock. When he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting to meet him. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and the ropes that were, were on his arms became as flax that has caught fire, and his bonds melted off his hands. And he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey and put out his hand and took it, and with it he struck 1,000 men. And Samson said, With the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps. With the jawbone of a donkey have I struck down a thousand men. As soon as he had finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone out of his hand, and that place was called Ramathlehi. And he was very thirsty, and he called upon the Lord and said, You have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant, and shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? And God split open the hollow place that is at Lehi, and water came out from it. And when he drank, his spirit returned, and he revived. Therefore, the name of it was in Hakori. It is at Lehi to this day, and he judged Israel in the days of the Philistines 20 years. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. I'm going to break this into three sections, just again, as I kind of do a little bit of a of, of brief rolling commentary. The first section in verses 1 through 8, we have this, this scene where Samson shows up, you know, he knocks at his father-in-law's house, goat under his arm, you know, he's, I can't be certain of this, but I think he probably even bathed. You know, he's, he's, he's put on his best, he's ready, he wants to see his wife. He is, and the father-in-law, of course, tells him, um, there's a problem. You can't go into her because she now belongs to another. I've given her, I thought that you hated her. When you stormed out of here, I thought that was your rejection of her. Well, this is kind of a, a flimsy excuse. And you can see that, that Samson's disdain for the Philistines is matched by the Philistines' disdain for him. And certainly there were, there were ethnic issues at work here as well. So Samson, he has this sort of ominous statement. You kind of see the scene. He's standing at the front door, and he says, okay, you know what? And the father says, how about the younger sister? I mean, she's prettier anyway. Nope, that's not my wife. And Samson makes this ominous statement. This time I shall be innocent in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. Notice, Samson doesn't just say, I'm seeking vengeance on my father-in-law. It's against all the Philistines. Now, we have to put this in, in its larger context. Remember, it is the Lord who began to stir up Samson. One of the things that we encountered at the beginning of chapter 13 was in this, this uh, cycle of the judges, we see the, the people rebel against God. He delivers them over to an oppressor, and then they cry out to the Lord, and God raises up a deliverer. Only this time, the people didn't cry out. They were so comfortable, so complacent, so cozy with the world in which they lived, the Philistine world, that they just shrugged it off. So the Lord had to provoke Samson and begin to provoke these conflicts. What we find in chapters 14, 15, and 16 is just an escalation of, it's not even a tit for tat. It's one offense and then a greater vengeance on behalf of Samson. So Samson makes this ominous declaration, I'm going to do the Philistines harm. So, and we all know this story, he goes, and the text tells us he caught 300 foxes. 
in, in the Hebrew, the word for the Hebrew word for fox also can be translated jackal. There's two different there's two different animals are of the same kind, canine, but they're they're different animals. It's very likely they were jackals. You know, for example, in Ezekiel, uh, Ezekiel refers to the prophets of God who had gone astray. Your prophets have been like jackals among ruins, O Israel. In Ezekiel 13, it's the same word. Now, foxes are very solitary creatures and there's not as many of them. Jackals were very numerous, even today. I read an article this week that in certain northern cities of Israel, jackals are beginning to come into the cities. Kind of like we've dealt with coyotes in certain areas, like in the woodlands or Conroe, where coyotes show up and take away somebody's little poodle. You know, that, that happened, it's happening in Israel today with jackals. So, but jackals also run in packs. So if you're going to collect 300 of them, jackals are an easier source. But notice also, this is not a sudden burst of temper from Samson. He tells the father-in-law, in a sense, there's going to be hell to pay. And he goes out and takes the time to collect 300 animals. And then all the time to tie them two by two, 150 pairs, tie a torch. You go, why why tie two together? Why not just tie 300 torches? Maybe he didn't have 300 torches. No, I think it was because putting them two together the animals are going to stop at several places as they go into the grain. They're not just going to take a straight line and run through. They're going to stop, which allows the fire to spread even more quickly. Now, this is more than just a uh, one isolated crop. But we have to understand what Samson has done by doing this is he has made a decisive blow against the Philistine economy that's going to take years, years to recover from. This is not only one wheat harvest, it is that, standing grain and stacked grain, all of it burned, but also it goes into the olive groves. Now the ESV kind of obscures this, it doesn't reference this, but he also goes into their vineyards, the, the grape vineyards. Now olive groves and grape vineyards, if they're burned with fire, it can take years for those to recover. You know, we lost some fruit trees in the, the freeze a couple of years ago. We, we still don't know if they're going to come back and bear fruit again. The plants survived, but they may not bear fruit again. Or if it is, it's going to be years before we see fruit from them again. So this is a decisive blow against the Philistines and against their economy. But notice also, the Philistines seem to agree with Samson that he was lawfully married. Notice, they said Samson, the son-in-law of the Timnite, has done this because he has taken his wife and given her to a companion. Even they seem to recognize Samson's father-in-law had done wrong. Now, the irony, of course, is that they go and they burn up his wife's house along with her father, which is exactly the thing she was trying to avoid when they threatened her on on the matter with the riddle. That's how, as Samson used Samson's language, that's how they ended up plowing with his heifer, was because they threatened to burn her house with fire in her father's house. Well, now we see the justice of God where that is done after all. But notice something else here, just as a, as a side note. One, one commentator pointed this out, and I think it's a great insight. Notice how the canonization, the, this concept of canonization, this concept of, of decreasing holiness and increasing depravity is marked by a culture's treatment and their regard, and especially the abuse of their women. Notice how, how his, the Timnite woman that Samson originally married is considered just a piece of property. 
and even the younger sister. There's no, no, no sense of what does she want. Is she interested in Samson? No, it's here. You can have her. She's just, she belongs to her father. She can belong to someone else. It's just a transaction. And that's a mark of the canonization of a culture, is that disregard, and particularly the abuse of a woman. Notice in the second section, beginning in verse 9, the, the, the Philistines now are seeking their revenge. I mean, this was quite a blow for them to lose their crops, their olive orchards, their wine vineyards. And they come to seek revenge. They form kind of a, a group to come into Judah. And Samson is now hiding out. We don't know exactly where Edom is, but it's a place in Judah. Samson, of course, is a Danite, but he's hiding out in some cave somewhere in Judah. The Philistines come up. They encamp against Judah. Judah the Judahites now are nervous. Here's this uh, Philistine army coming against them, and they're thinking, what do we do? We're going to be attacked. And so they send a delegation out. Why, why have you come against us? Well, we're coming for Samson. And they said... We've come to bind Samson to do with him or do to him as he did to us. You see the, the, the ethos, the ethic of the Philistines is the antithesis of the golden rule. Rather than do unto others as you would have them do unto you, it's do unto others as they did to you. But notice Samson adopts the same thing. Then 3,000 men of Judah go down to the cleft of the rock of Edom and they say to Samson, Notice this. This is, this is one of the saddest statements in the entire book of Judges. They come holding on vigorously to the status quo. Rather than saying, Samson is our deliverer, Samson has been raised up by God to deliver us from the Philistines, let's get an army and go and get Samson and go out against the Philistines. They don't do that. They go to Samson and say, we need you to come with us, we plan to deliver you over to the Philistines. In fact, they say to him, do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? Who's, who told them that? What then is this that you have done to us? See, Samson attacked the Philistines. And the Judahites are going, what did you do to us? Now, was there not one man among those 3,000 from Judah? who would stand up and say, brothers. Now, I know he's from a different tribe, but we, he's from the same father Abraham as we. He is a fellow Israelite. Perhaps we ought to join him in opposing our oppressors. But not one of 3,000 men stood up and said, we must do what's right in the sight of God. Not one. Now, it's interesting that, that Samson just willingly goes along, and all, his only concession is, are you going to kill me? No, not, I mean, we're not technically going to kill you. And we're going to hand you into the hands of people who are probably going to do that, but we technically will not have blood on our hands. Which must have been the same way that Joseph's brothers tried to soothe their consciences when they chose not to kill Joseph, instead sold him into a Midianite slave trader uh, caravan. But Samson goes along. Now, we don't know. We're not told in the text. What was Samson's motivation? Was he already plotting something else? Or is he just love-struck, love-lost, love he's depressed, and just thinking, I'm, consigned, I'm resigning myself to be a captive to my enemies. 
But we're told here, and there's a little bit of a teaser, we're told that they bind him with new ropes. It's a foreshadowing. It's a teaser of something big that's about to happen. And notice, as, 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 they, as they gather him and they bring him to the Philistines, it's not Samson's strength that breaks these new ropes. It's the power of God that just melts them away. And as we, as we see him come to the, the, the Philistines, in verse 14, when he comes to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting to meet him. I mean, use your, your sanctified imagination to hear this, this raucous crowd as Samson, their, 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 their nemesis. He comes and he's bound. They can see his hands. They can probably his feet bound. They see him bound, and they, and they just they're, they're shouting and rejoicing. And with the enemies rejoicing over their apparent victory over him, the Spirit of the living God, we're told, rushes upon Samson. And by a strength that's not his own, as, as his bonds just melt away, he grabs, we're told, a freshly killed, a fresh jawbone from a donkey and kills a thousand men. Just like that. And the ordinary uselessness of such a weapon, I mean, if you've gone to war, and some of you in this room have, you didn't choose a jawbone to go with you as your, in, in your holster. That wasn't in your scabbard. That's not a choice weapon. But it was what it was at hand. And, and the fact that that's ordinarily a very useless weapon highlights the fact that even a man with extraordinary strength like Samson had was insufficient for this task apart from the power of God coming upon him. It also highlights the fact that Samson has once again broken his Nazarite vow. So whatever we, have, we, we read here about God's work is not due to Samson's merit. It's not due to his justness or his holiness or his righteousness or his worthiness. God has freely, graciously given his power to him on behalf of his people. And then the third section, beginning at verse 18, we're told that Samson... It's not hard to imagine. I mean, even a, a mighty man filled with the Spirit of God to kill a thousand men, that's quite an exertion. I mean, just to, to, to wrestle around the floor with somebody for just two or three minutes will wear a man out. But to, do, to kill a thousand men with uh, an inadequate weapon, he's, he's, he's tuckered out. And he says, I'm thirsty. And for the very first time, Samson calls upon the Lord. For the very first time. First time he even acknowledges the Lord. At least in terms of what was recorded for us. He was thirsty. He called upon Yahweh and said, You have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant, and shall I now die of thirst? Shall I not die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? Does this sound familiar? See, Samson's repeating almost word for word the Israelite mantra coming out of Egypt. Oh, you've delivered us from the Egyptians by your mighty hand and outstretched arm, but now we're going to die of thirst and hunger out here in the wilderness. It was nothing but unbelief. And so even when Samson calls out to the Lord, we need to see it's, it's mixed at best. Samson appears to give Yahweh credit, but we have to ask, is this really de true devotion to Yahweh? And then the answer is no. Number one, we see a faithlessness here that, oh, you've just delivered me. I've killed a thousand men with almost my bare hands, but now I'm going to die of thirst. 
Well, the Lord graciously hears his prayer, bursts open a rock, and notice somehow Samson responds. Number one, he's grumbling about his thirst, reminding us of the Israelites coming out of Egypt and their faithlessness. But also notice, he names two different places. One, he calls he calls Ramath-Lehi, which means hill of the jawbone. Now, he's not naming a geographical location. He's talking about the heap of bodies and says this is the heap of jawbones. And Samson breaks out, and, and he becomes a poet all of a sudden. And he says, with the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps. In the, in the Hebrew, those are two words spelled exactly the same way, donkey and heap. And so it's a word play that doesn't really work well in our English Bible, kind of goes over our English heads. But Samson, it's, it's poetry, and it's actually good poetry in terms of its rhythm and meter and the words that he uses. But then he names this place, the, the hill of the jawbone. Then when the spring opens up and God quenches his thirst, he names this after himself. In Hakori, I'm in my, in my ESV Bible, you can see if you've got one of those, you'll see the, the footnote. It means spring of him who called. Basically, he named it in the honor of the prayer, not the one who answered his prayer. So this is not, we cannot look at Samson and say, this, these, the, the events that we see here are done out of a holy zeal for God and his glory. Or even on behalf of his own people. So what do we make of this? What, what do, I mean, do we just close our Bibles and say it's time for lunch, this is weird, what do we do with this? I'm going to make three observations with respect to application. I mean, obviously we've got a fascinating story, but, but how do we as Christians... Think about application here. And the first application I want us to consider is I want us to behold the divine scorn of his enemies. Notice how God holds his enemies in derision, how he mocks them. This whole scene is is humorous. Now, admittedly, it's dark humor. For some of you, you already have your, your palate cultivated for such things. Others, this may seem strange to you to kind of laugh at the destruction of the Philistines in this way. But I promise you, now we talked about this. I mean, we've seen this before in Judges. I mean, who could could forget back in chapter 3, big fat Ehud, and how we talked about then. Imagine at the local, you know, Jewish tavern, the story of Ehud being told over and over again, and oh, how the, the Israelites would howl with laughter at that story. And it was intentional. The narrator says certain things, uses, even chooses certain words to cause the people of God to mock their enemies. We find a very similar feature here in Judges 15. And we ought to take note of that. We ought to actually take comfort in the fact that Yahweh has a contempt, a scorn, a derision, a mocking position towards his enemies. The whole narrative of, of, this, of chapter 15 makes the Philistines come off looking like fools, inept, impotent in their desire to seek revenge on Samson. At every turn, they think they've got him, and their plans are foiled. They think, whether it's giving his wife away, or mocking him, or capturing him, him, they think, "We, we, we can get the upper hand, and God laughs. And now in the telling of the story, generation after generation, the Israelites surely will laugh. 
Again, it's dark humor, but it is humor. Do you find that troublesome? Is it uncomfortable, the idea that the Bible would put forth to us destruction of human beings and say, laugh at that, mock it, mock them in in their destruction? Uh, Dale Ralph Davis, commenting on this passage, says, the Bible uses humor when it has a very sober point to make. The humor is not only human, but also divine. The Philistines are the enemy of Yahweh's people. Here, their stupidity is held up for ridicule. Here, they are made the laughingstock of Israel. Why? To show us the peril of being an enemy of Yahweh's people, even his sinful people. See, it's designed here to show us something. It's humor, but it makes a very important point. It is a dangerous thing to be an enemy of God's people. Even his sinful covenant-breaking people still belong to God. Davis goes on, Yahweh makes fools of those who seek to ruin and crush his people. The awesome fearfulness of Israel's God, his enemies and theirs are kid stuff for God. He toys with them and makes his people able to laugh at them. It is a ghastly thing to make oneself the object of divine laughter. Turn with me, please, to Psalm number 2. Some of you probably already had turned there, anticipating. In Psalm 2, we have this question. And think about this psalm through the lens of Judges 15. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? We could, not just nations generally, we could say, why do the Philistines rage? Why do the Philistines plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Sound familiar? He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrifying them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Samson is no king. Samson is no righteous man, and yet he is God's anointed. God has raised him up, and and the Lord says, both to the Philistines and to his own people, "This this is the fate of those who oppose me. This is the fate of those who come up against my people. Do we think this way? Are we praying and seeking to cultivate in ourselves a hatred for sin itself? See, the Philistines throughout the scripture sort of represent, a, the Philistines are a people who are, in, in one measure, a type for sin itself. Do we hate sin like this? Do we cultivate that? Do we pray for that? Do we ask the Lord to create in our own souls a holy hatred of all that God hates, a holy hatred of all that is opposed to him, of all that attacks his people? Or do we sort of laugh at the wrong joke? Do we laugh at the sin that, that our brothers and sisters indulge in? And kind of wink and nod. Do we do that with our own children? Because when they're, when they're two or four or five, oh, it's kind of cute, their rebellion. No, it's not cute. It's devilish, and it will lead to their destruction if we as parents don't correct them and if the Lord doesn't save them. There's another application, a second one. We ought to lament complacency among God's people. We ought to lament. It ought, something ought to grieve our Christian hearts 
when we see in other Christians and when we find in our own soul a complacency, a, a coziness with this world, a comfort with sin. We ought to lament complacency among God's people. It ought to grieve us to see Christians who become so comfortable and so at ease with this world that they don't even oppose it. It ought to especially to cause us to lament when we detect that same kind of coziness in our own souls. You know, this is the status quo kind of people. Think of the men of Judah. Oh, Samson, don't you know these are rulers over us? Don't you know that we have to submit to them? Don't you know we have to do what they say? Don't you know that they are our lords? They are our masters? Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, and he's dealing with the passage, Blessed are the peacemakers. Listen to what he says. These easygoing, peace-at-any-price people are often lacking in a sense of justice and righteousness. They do not stand where they should stand. Your true peacemaker is not an appeaser, as we say today. You can postpone war by appeasement, but it generally means you are doing something that is unjust and unrighteous in order to avoid war. The mere avoidance of war does not make peace. It does not solve the problem. The men of Judah were just such men. They were appeasers. They were unprincipled cowards. And you ever notice that when someone stands up to evil and oppression that many people are angrier with the person who stood up than they are with the oppressor? I mean, how often did we see that over the last few years? Where a certain church or a certain pastor would say, no, Caesar, we're not closing the doors of the church. And what happened? Christians came and attacked, not the civil magistrate, who was unlawfully closing down churches. The Christians would attack the one who stood up and said, this isn't right. You don't have the authority to, cro- to close one of Christ's local churches. You don't have the authority to say we, we can't immerse someone in the waters of baptism. You don't have the authority to say we can't sing praises to our God. You don't have the authority to say we can't offer the Lord's Supper to our people. And Christians are the ones who stood up and said, you're the one who's wrong. Don't you know that they rule over us? Don't you know that the CDC is our Lord? Don't you know that the premier is our master? Don't you know that the governor is our king? And far too few. Far too few. Christians even understood the issues enough to stand up and say, this is wrong. And I'm thankful. I'm, I'm, I'm so thankful that a very large measure of us in, in, in the, at GFPC Conroe have been of one mind about public policy in these areas. I'm, I'm so thankful for the unity that God has given to us. And, and we've lamented together the complacency of other Christians on these matters. And even We've lamented, many of us have lamented that to see it in our, even in our own extended families, that complacency. But here's where it gets harder. It's easy, I think, in a sense, to see on a big civil level, on a big macro level. But it's necessary for us to give serious thought to those ways in which we ourselves are comfortable, cozy, complacent with the status quo. What are the ways that we find in our, own, in our own hearts, our own affections, our own patterns of thought, where we're tempted to take the easy path? We're tempted to choose comfort over conflict. That's necessary conflict. I'm not talking about looking for a fight. 
Also, I try to remember in my sermon preparation, uh, our, our School of Faithful Men, we read a book earlier this year called The Priority of Preaching. It's a little book by Christopher Ashe. And one of the questions he asks, I think he's really helpful, when we're, when we're reading the Scriptures, especially when we're hearing the Scriptures together, we ought to ask, before I ask, how does this apply to me? What we ought to ask is, how does this apply to us? Because the Word of God goes first to a corporate body to an assembled people, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. How does this apply to us? Now, as I ask this question, saints, I think I need to say something hard to us as a congregation. I detect a complacency among us, a comfort among us. And and for some of you, this may be an encouragement to persevere in not being complacent. And I hope you will find it as such. I hope you will, will find that as encouragement. Not like the Pharisee who thanks God that he's not like other men. I don't want you to be like that. I don't want me to be like that. But to continue, rather, in a humble self-examination and, and, and service to Christ. But for others, this may come as a needed admonishment, maybe even as a rebuke. I see a complacency among us with, with respect to our Christian duties to one another as church members. There is, among the men of Judah, this is not only their sin against Samson. They had duties to one another. They were neglecting. Again, not one of the 3,000 said, Brothers, what is our duty to God here? What is our duty to the assembly? What is our duty with respect to worship? Not one of them. They went along. The, 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 The Philistines are running the show, and we will bow and kiss their ring. That was the response. I see among some of our members a neglect of the fellowship, a neglect of the duties to honor the Lord's Day and participate fully in the life of the church. You know, the men of Judah failed in their devotion to God, but they also failed in their service to one another. Now, I was thinking about this this week and thinking about the, the comfort and complacency that I find in my own soul. You know, as I speak to you as, as one among the sheep, as a shepherd among you. I, I see that in my own soul in ways. And I, I think about Philippians 4, where Paul, Paul has received an offering from the Philippian church, but he's very quick to say, this is not even about the offering. I've learned I, don't, I, I, can, I can do with or I can do without. That's not really the point. But listen to what he says. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. See, Paul saw something in them. He said, this is growth. This is sanctification. This is a partnership in the sake, for the sake of the gospel. This is a willingness to sacrifice your own interests, your own time, talent, treasure, for the sake of the gospel. And Paul said, it's not about the gift. I mean, the gift was a blessing, but he said, I, di- I didn't need that. What, what encouraged Paul's pastor's heart was the fact that those in whom he had poured his life and his ministry were growing and profiting under it. And the, the, the fruit to the church, or the fruit that, that accrued to the church, that, that benefited them, also has, I think, a necessary antithesis or a necessary opposite. If we think about it this way, that lack of such a devotion, lack of such a devotion would accrue to their harm. He says, see, the fruit accrues to your credit. It's to your benefit, ultimately. But the opposite also has to be true, doesn't it? There has to be a detriment. There has to be a harm done to those who neglect those duties. See, earlier in the book of Philippians, in chapter 2, 
Paul says to the church, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. See, Paul said, there's a real risk here. And, he, and his pastor's heart was worried that as I've poured into you, is there going to be fruit? That's what he's asking. And then in chapter 4, he goes, praise the Lord, I see that fruit. And Paul says he's concerned that his labors as a pastor, as an apostle, could prove to be in vain if the Philippian Christians did not apply, did not apply his apostolic instruction. Brothers and sisters, when we, when we gather each week, I mean, when I stand each week, for example, to teach Sunday school, I look at the room right now, there's very few empty seats. That's not the case in Sunday school. There's very few people here, relatively speaking. As a percentage of our congregation, it's a very small percentage. That ought not be. And, and I'm discouraged, not for my sake, but for the sake of those who neglect those opportunities. It's an, it's an indication of, of a comfort with something else of a satisfaction with a status quo. Next year will mark 25 years since I became a Christian. At the time, I had a four-year-old daughter and about a six-month-old son. And, and from that time forward, we sought out every opportunity that we could find to have our family instructed in the Word of God. Every opportunity we could find that was good, wholesome teaching. And, and, and I don't say that to boast at all, but to testify of God's faithfulness to his means. God's faithfulness to his means to grow us and shape us in knowledge and understanding. You know, when I think about our fellowship meal, but especially the prayer meetings that, again, are, are poorly attended. And again, I'm, I'm commending many of you, persevere in this. But our corporate prayer is an appointed means of grace. It is a command of Christ for us to gather corporately and pray. And, and for some who neglect those opportunities, neglect those duties, there's, there's, a, there's a comfort somewhere with a status quo. And again, I can't sort that out for you. You've got to search yourself and see, what, what is it? What, I, what am I clinging to? What am I comfortable with? Now, I will say to this, I want to say as a, as a, as a side note, as a practical necessity between Sunday school and prayer meeting, if you can only attend one, attend the prayer meeting. And that's a clear, explicit command of Christ for us to gather corporately and pray. Sunday school is supplemental. It's a good thing. Uh, but I can't, I can't give you a thus saith the Lord that if you're not here, you're in sin. But the prayer meeting is commanded of our Savior. It's an appointed means of his. Now, in my original draft of the notes, I had more specific examples that I, 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 I cut out. I'm going to leave that to the Holy Spirit to give you uh, an application there. But as I've, I've, I'm not speaking here of, of providential hindrances, certainly, I'm not, I'm, but I'm speaking of settled patterns, deliberate patterns. And I know, I mean, I've been there. There are seasons of life, and you get out of a habit, and then it just, it's just that inertia. It's hard to get over the hump to get started again. I understand those things. I've been there. Um, in some ways, I'm there in other areas right now. And, and, but some have become comfortable. Some become complacent in neglecting those things. And it's not just good for you. 
but it's good for your brothers and sisters. And sometimes, well, I, I, well this is the live stream. Well, that's great, but how does that benefit anyone else? How does that benefit your brothers and sisters? Well, I already know all that stuff. I mean, I've already, I've already kind of gone through that before. Well, great. You can be an even bigger help to those of, like me who haven't learned these things yet. And once again, for many of you, I don't seek to, to wound a tender conscience or, or break a bruised reed with this at all. Um, I pray this is an encouragement for some of you to, to persevere. I mean, to, to claim the, the promise of Galatians 6, not grow weary in well-doing. And if you do not give up, what does the Lord say? You will reap a harvest. But, but, there's a reminder here that Galatians 6 gives another promise about sowing and reaping. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whoever, for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And as I'm, and I'm, looking ahead to the rest of Judges, which, frankly, I'm not looking forward to. I'll just, I can be honest with you, I'm not looking forward to preaching some of those. They're hard, they're, they're hard, difficult things even to read, much less to talk about publicly. But my desire, as I love you and I pray for you all, and I eagerly desire to see us all growing together in the grace of the gospel. And, and, and Lord willing, as we, as we get into these darker parts, we need to understand that the ancient church of Israel wandered away from their God. They wandered away from the truth. And Moses had warned them repeatedly. Go read through the Deuteronomy. It's a series of sermons. Where De- Moses is constantly saying things like, do not think to yourself. Do not say in your heart. And what is he telling them? You're going to forsake your God. You're going to wander away. You're going to embrace the idols of the culture. You're going to become comfortable and cozy with the world around you. Over and over. And, and you know, they're, they're like us. The Israelites were just like you and me. They were saying, not going to, don't we, me? I mean, I've got this friend over here who's a little, you know, he's a little shady. I can see that, but not me. And, and they did. And see, their apostasy didn't begin with a great apostasy. It didn't begin with Baal worship. It began with small neglecting of duty. Neglecting of small, ordinary, everyday duties. They neglected the charge from Deuteronomy 6 to teach these things to your children. When you get up in the morning, when you walk along the way, when you lay down at night, catechize your children, teach them about the Lord. They neglected that. Gather together among the saints. Be together and worship the Lord on the Sabbath day. And they neglected that. They didn't do it. And they pridefully thought, I won't be the one who strays. And yet God had appointed a means to keep them from straying, and they ignored them. They didn't believe God. See, there's a danger for us, isn't there? God's warned us in the same way. This is, this is why the apostle of the Hebrews in chapter 10 says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. See, the, the apostle here says, let us consider this. He doesn't say just go do it. Consider it. Think about it. Because it's different for everyone. In, in 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul's admonishing the whole church. And he says, admonish the idle or unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, comfort the weak, be patient with them all. Well, I mean, who hasn't been idle or unruly? I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. I don't want to embarrass anybody. But who hasn't been weak and faint-hearted? 
See, all of us at any given moment can be one or two or even all three of those. So for some of us, we need to be able to encourage one another and comfort someone in their weakness. There's, there's, a, there's a physical illness. There are other things that are hindering them. And we need to be walking alongside one another. There are others who need a kick in the pants. And, and we need to know and have the wisdom prayerfully to know which is which. Being patient with everyone. So we see here in this, this chapter, Judges 15, we see a, a, a divine scorn of the enemies of God. And we, we see this, this, this lament of the complacency among God's people. And especially when we see a complacency in our own souls, we ought to lament that. We ought to seek God's face for that deliverance. I was, I was struck this morning as Kyle was teaching Sunday school and wrapping up the book of Esther, the very last verse in the book of Esther, the very last verse. Mordecai the Jew was second only to King Ahasuerus and was great among the Jews and pleasing to his many fellow brothers, one who sought the good of his people and one who spoke for the peace of all his seed. That's a, that's a, that's a typological statement. This is Christ typified here in Mordecai. He, 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 he had as his, he, he's placed in second of command of the entire Persian Empire. And what does he do with that post? What does he do with that gift, that grace that God has given to him? He sought the welfare of all the people of God. He sought to use what God had given him. How do I, he thought to himself, how do I use this for the benefit of others? Finally, last application. Remember that the victory is always the Lord's. Remember the victory is always the Lord's. How often do we, like Samson, give a certain you know, lip service to God, praising God for a victory. And then we turn right around and name a victory after ourselves. Samson is, is rejoicing here. You have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant. But you haven't given me enough. You've granted this great salvation, but God, you have held out on me because now I'm thirsty. You have given me this great salvation, but I don't have enough. The Lord was the source of Samson's strength, and, and, and he, he may not give us the same kind of supernatural physical strength that the Lord gave to Samson, but he does, in a sense, even better than that. If you turn with me, just real, real quick, to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians 3 is beginning of verse 7. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. So notice this theme of God's power as Paul writes this. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to life for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, who, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. 
For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So here's Samson, whose new ropes melted like flax. His bonds were broken. Well, if you go back and read chapters 1 and 2 of Ephesians, spiritually speaking, that's what God has done to us. If you were in Christ, the bonds that once ensnared you, that, that, that held you fast in your sin, God has broken those bonds. He's given you to a far greater salvation than Samson ever knew. Samson didn't exercise true faith, I think, until his dying moment. We have the opportunity to walk in faith before our Lord, to exercise that power that exists within us. And this scene of the men in Judah binding Samson just immediately reminded me of they, they binding him and they're delivering him over to the Philistines and the Philistines are shouting and rejoicing and you can only imagine the, 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 the depravity of that scene. And yet, even that scene is not equaled or, or far surpassed by the scene in the Garden of Gethsemane. When Judas had done the demonic deed and handed over, with a, betrayed with a kiss, and here all these men with their torches and their pitchforks and their swords, and they come and they bind Christ. And Christ went along peacefully. So I was in the marketplace just today. You could have gotten me there. Why, why the cover of darkness? Why this big scene? But they handed him over. They conspired with sinful men. They handed him over to the Roman authorities. Oh, the Jews were basically saying, oh, we, we won't kill you. I mean, we don't have that authority, but we won't kill you ourselves. But we're going to scream like buddy murder, literally, to get the Romans to do it for us. They handed him over to sinful men. These events foreshadow the Jews celebrating Jesus' capture and execution. And here, they mocked him openly. He saved others. He can't save himself. They mocked him. They taunted him as he hung on the tree. But who had the last laugh? Paul tells the Colossian church that when God raised him from the grave, he put his enemies to open shame. He mocked them. Jesus told his disciples in Mark chapter 3, No man can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. Jesus has come in and bound the strong man. You see sort of the flip of what happened with Samson. If you're in Christ this morning, the chains of sin, death, the condemnation of the law have all been broken. The strong man has been bound, your chains have been undone, and you are now free, not to live as you please, you're free now to walk in holiness before the Lord, to walk in the power of his spirit, to rejoice openly and freely in the good gifts that he's given you, to rejoice in the fact that you no longer stand under the condemnation of the law. You no longer stand under the sin of Adam. You no longer stand under the guilt and shame of original sin. God has done that for you. God has done that for me. Loose those bonds. 
And if you've not yet believed in the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, as, as Lord, then know this, you remain bound. You remain held steadfast by the cords, the ropes, the chains of your own sin. You are a prisoner of your own making. And yet Christ has offered his salvation to all men freely who will believe it. Call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved. Your chains will be broken like flax melting in a fire. Your bonds will be broken. Christ has come. He's taken the yoke of slavery on himself. He who knew no sin became sin for you. He's the one who hung on the tree where I should have been, where you should have been. He has borne our guilt. He's borne our shame so that all who believe in him can be set free. Will you believe that? Will you believe him? Not me. Will you believe him? Will you confess your sin today and flee to him? It's the promise of mercy. So we see in, in Judges 15, and I hope this makes um, some sense of the application of the chapter thinking through, there's, there's, there's far more. As you studied on your own, you may come up with some other things. You go, hey, David, you missed this. Oh, yeah, I did miss that. I didn't think about that. But we see how God holds his enemies in contempt. We see the divine scorn of God's enemies and those who are enemies of his people. But we also see a call for us to lament a complacency, a coziness, a comfort with the status quo, a comfort with the world. And we see a reminder here that the victory is always the Lord's. If you are in Christ, you have been delivered. It's been a great salvation. Beyond what we even know, beyond what we can comprehend, is our rescue. And yet it's all of God. It is all of his grace. It is all of his work. So with that, let's go to him in, in prayer. Father, you are good and gracious and kind to your people. I thank you for your word. We thank you that you, you love us in such a way that you confront us. thank you for the way that you've worked in, in me wrestling with the text this week and to see those, the sin that remains, the sin that, that offends you and, and, and restrains me. I pray for my brothers and sisters. I pray that we will grow together in righteousness and holiness and love for our God and for one another. I pray that your word will have its perfect work. Your will is our sanctification. We are sanctified by the means of your word and spirit. We pray that you will use this for our good, for your glory, and use it as a means, as a means of calling sheep that are not yet in your fold to come and hear the voice of the shepherd, a good shepherd, and follow him. Amen.